Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter. I am joined, as always, by the Snoopy to my Charlie Brown, Brandon. I like that one a lot. I'm I'm, I'm basically the the logo for Minnesota outside of the loon. Oh well, on Halloween, um, I will be driving home from my first South Dakota pheasant hunt of the year, which uh, should be should be fun. I'm looking forward to it with all my fellas. We're heading out the first of at least four South Dakota trips we have planned, uh, which should be awesome, man. And we'll How's drive it? home and drive through those little towns. I mean, it's funny because I've done this before and I'll be driving home through lots of little towns, you know, in, in southwestern Minnesota and you'll see all the kids out trick-or-treating and stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you'll be driving driving through where I kind of grew up and stuff like that in yep. southwest Minnesota. So that's pretty yep, cool. How exactly. are the conditions looking for hunting out there? Uh, they could use some rain. I yeah. mean, I, from what I've heard from guys who've been out there so far, there's a there's a lot of birds. It was a very good nesting season for pheasants. I don't know. Are those guys saying that on the Flush podcast as well? That's what I've heard. Yep. Yeah. But um, some guys I know who've been out there, like it's really dry and windy, which that makes it hard for the dogs to pick up scent. Um, if it if there's a little moisture, it holds the scent down. I did see some photos of uh, of of the flush, the flush podcasts. Travis Frank in North Dakota with snow on the ground. Wow! Do you see that? That so that would be that's just ideal, absolutely yep. ideal. If there's just like a little bit of snow, it covers up the old scent. Dogs can pick up the fresh scent uh, on top of the the snow. Um, but so that was. Perfect for those guys. I don't think we're going to get that. It's going to be in like the mid 60s, actually. I was wow. thinking about adding some electrolytes to the dog water bucket. I mean, I take like a big five gallon thing of water yeah. out with me in the back of my truck for the dogs. And uh, mid 60s, man, that's too hot for my. I'd love it if it were in the mid 40s. Yeah, hunting pheasants in a t shirt is kind of odd for these parts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, I'm sure by the afternoon, that'll be down to like a t-shirt and uh, uh you know my game vest so t-shirt and orange but hey i'm not complaining i mean uh yeah and i've already got one deer in the freezer it was a rather small deer but uh i'm happy with it i'm happy to have one deer in the freezer uh, my son aiden and i will be back up north uh hunting deer with some other family members on minnesota firearms opener and then it's back to south dakota and then what's after that? Oh, a weekend in Iowa preaching at a Lutheran church and uh, hunting. And then it's back to South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got a duck hunt in Wisconsin. Then it's back to South Dakota. And then it's pretty much Christmas. So I'm pretty much, I'm gone like nine weekends in a row. Maybe I mentioned that last time, but who You'll be supporting a lot of small town local economies. Oh, yeah. And so buying lots of hunting licenses and buying dog food and all sorts of stuff. And I have a very graceful spouse who is really happy for me that I get to go out and hunt as much as I do. So all is good. You're very uh, and we got to get you back out on some fezzies. Yeah, that's that's what I keep hearing. Yeah, I'm 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 more than game. I will open up my schedule and push aside some shows just to get out there <laughs> and hopefully well, see a pheasant. I'm yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna uh, get in the ear of of our flush buddies and see if we can't get something on the calendar. So they reminded me that this is the year. So I mean, it better be the year. Is it? Is it? Have they been talking about it too? They've, they've talked about it in passing a couple of times. Like, oh, we got to get you out there. You know, we can't go the first week. You know, that's when everybody's out. But then yeah. after that, you know, we should we should get out there. So Okay, I'm going to drop them an email today. And uh, I know those guys travel a lot too, but we'll we'll try to get some midweek hunt and get you on a get you on an actual pheasant. That would be fun. We'll figure out a way to get out there some way or another. Yeah. Uh, I had a really engaging conversation with today's guest, Tom Ord. He is uh, a philosopher and a theologian. He's a process uh, theologian, which you know we get into a little bit. It's it is you know kind of um, an interesting minority opinion, I'd say. It, it's kind of a dissenting opinion from 
traditional, conventional modes of theology and thinking about who God is, how God interacts with the world. Uh, we get into that. Um, we get in a little bit into, you know, this tradition he came from. It's called the Nazarene Church. Uh, it's a pretty conservative holiness movement. And in his struggles, he's actually gone on trial, literal trial, <laughs> a couple times in his denomination, which is a funny thing when you think about it, I guess. Uh, I don't, I've never been a part of a church tradition that puts people on trial. Although we do talk about that I've, I have been kicked out of uh, a Christian organization. So <laughs> more, more of a trial by press as opposed to an actual trial. Yeah, yeah that too. Exactly. Right. Uh, Tom's a great guy. And we have some really, I think, interesting conversations about the death of animals, our, our empathy, the empathy that we feel for different kind of creatures. And it's something we've explored in the past on the Reverend Hunter podcast about why it's harder to shoot a deer than it is to, you know, hook a fish. Um, and Tom has an interesting take on that, that really was made, has made me think in the, in the 24 hours since the conversation that I've had with him, I've been thinking a lot about that and I will continue to, as I continue to kill animals this weekend, uh, with pheasants, you know? So Tom is a fascinating guy. You can, in the show notes, you can see the link to his website. Of course, all his books are listed there. He has lots of speaking gigs, uh, lots of YouTube videos if you want to learn more about him. So uh, I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. And before we turn to that, friends, you got to bring Grain Belt to the outdoors. You got to do it. With the limited edition premium hunting season pack, it's available wherever you can find premium uh, Grain Belt premium 12 and 24 pack cans. And you can also, this season, enter to win a hunting trip for two at Brown's Hunting Lodge. You find that on Grain Belt's website, which is grainbelt.com slash hunting dash trip. So uh, do that. Buy it. Pick yourself up some of those camo pack Grain Belt and support the show and, you know, Feel free to post on social media that you heard about it on the Reverend Hunter podcast. We appreciate their support, and we appreciate you listening, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the Reverend Hunter podcast and all of our brother and sister podcasts on the Talk North Network. Uh, here's my conversation with Tom Ord. Hey, Tom, thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Um where do we where do we find you today? Well, I just came back from a couple of weeks on the road. I saw you a little at uh, Theology Beer Camp, and then I had some other speaking gigs. And then my wife my wife met me in New Orleans, and we drove from New Orleans to New York to see my daughter. So big Whoa, road trip. That's that's a long drive, dude. What? what why did she, had she driven to New Orleans? No, she flew to New Orleans. I. Louisiana was my 50th state, so now I've been in all 50, oh, no and kidding. she wanted to get some southern states in, so we were driving through states so she could gotcha. check them off her, her list. That's awesome. And what'd you do in New York? Uh, my middle daughter works at Columbia University, so we did you know, kind of some of the usual tourist things, went to a Broadway nice. play, and that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. And now you're back in... Uh... In the Great West, in the mountain back ranges. in Idaho, yeah, yeah. Idaho's gotten a little, uh, gotten a little bright red uh, recently. I, in fact, I, my brother lives in Bend, Oregon. Oh, and and uh, he, you know, Eastern Oregon is pretty conservative. He's yes. had friends decamp to Idaho because they think Oregon's too liberal and they want yeah. a more conservative state. Yeah, there are some years when Idaho is the reddest state in presidential elections. I think this last go around we weren't necessarily. And, and interestingly, the uh, I don't vote Republican, but um, the primaries here were decidedly Ted Cruz, and then of course when Trump um, got the election or the nomination several years ago, they all voted for Trump. But it's a little bit of a disconnect since Idaho has also got a pretty big Mormon population. And yeah. so um, I have some Mormon friends who felt conflicted. 
I bet because they're very much pietists. Mormons, right? Are. Right. And and, 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 and for the listeners who don't know, pietist is kind of shorthand for people who care a lot about um, your your behavior as a Christian how how you how you behave on a day to day basis. No drinking, gambling, smoking, that kind of thing. Right. And what's interesting is, you know, what was it, two elections previous when Romney ran against Obama? Of course, you know, Mormons in Idaho had lots of reasons to vote for Mar- uh, for Romney as a Republican conservative and as a Mormon. And I remember one of my friends is a, a Mormon bishop in the area, and he was really pushing me. And he said, no, you're not voting against Romney because he's Mormon, are you? It's, this is not an anti-LDS thing. And I said, well, you're not voting for him because he's Mormon. This is not like a well, he's on our tribe kind of thing. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, have good times. Yeah, you look back now and you think, boy, Romney would have been a great president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Comparatively. Yeah. Um, okay. Speaking of pietism, you you – you're, you grew up in a pietist tradition, and I want to kind of trace that and give people a little sense of where you came from and until you, uh, uh, I don't know what a good metaphor would be, the, the, uh, the, the train ran into a brick wall or, you know, something happened in that <laughs> pietist tradition in which you were nurtured and came to some conflict some years ago that for those of us in the theology world was... You know, we were all paying close attention to it. But before we get to that, tell us uh, what what it means to be a Nazarene and to grow up in that pietist tradition. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in eastern Washington State. I was a farm boy. Uh, started attending the Church of the Nazarene from infancy. And actually, I'm still an ordained elder in that tradition. Um, so I haven't actually left it, but I've definitely swung more toward... I guess if there's a left Nazarene contingency, I'm in that. Uh, but yeah, you know, went to church, Sunday school. In our tradition, we did Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights, and then we had scouting stuff. And yeah, it was very big part of my life growing up. And and I was, by the time I was in high school and college, I was like a little evangelist. Hmm. Uh, I was talking to people and <laughs> on airplanes and on beaches and <laughs> sharing the gospel. I was pretty, right? uh, yeah, I was one of those obnoxious kind of people. I, um, I saw in your book that you were in Campus Crusade. I was in Campus Crusade. You were? Oh. Well, I got kicked out. Uh, <laughs> I got kicked out halfway through my sophomore year because, uh, when I sat down to talk to the crusade staff guy, he said that the, the, he, I remember the quote, Tom, I remember it verbatim. He said, really the staff and student leaders of Dartmouth campus crusade for Christ have met. And we've decided that you have an unteachable spirit. Oh my. <laughs> and so there's no room for you in the leadership of campus crusade at Dartmouth. Uh... You can still keep coming to Bible study if you want. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no thanks. Oh. And then, you know, I went up to my dorm. Uh, I went up to my third. I was I lived on the third floor of South Massachusetts Hall. And this is, you know, 1987. So I had to use the pay phone in the hallway to call my youth pastor back in Minnesota. And I was crying, crying. Because, mm. you know, I was planning to go into ministry, go to seminary. Yep. And here I just got kicked out of... Uh, you know, Campus Crusade. We must be about the same age because that was about the end of my crusade times as well. And I would have yeah. been, what was I, a junior in college at that point? Yeah. Yeah. But for me, what it was more theological. I was starting to sniff out some of the more reformed Calvinist uh, traditions within the at least the, the crew leadership yeah. that, that was with me. And uh, they were pressuring me. It was the opposite of you. They were pressuring me to be a leader. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I wasn't quite sure this was what I ought to do. And I remember this one leader sitting me down and saying, you know, Tom, you need to pray for this. And if the door opens up, that's God asking you to walk through and join crusade. And I said, okay, well, you know, what am I going to say? I can't say I'm not going to pray about it. So I prayed about it, and whatever it was that was the the uh, the issue, 
the door slammed shut. <laughs> and so I came to the the leader. I said, look, I prayed about it. This door slammed shut. And he said to me, you know, sometimes God closes a door and opens a window. And I thought to myself, this is a scam. <laughs> uh, this well, is not I got in trouble. Um, I mean, I'd grown up in a mainline church that had women pastors. And, uh, pastors, you know. and so yeah. I started to be like, how come you guys all go to churches all the Campus Crusade staff guys went to these little Bible churches that yeah. didn't allow women to preach. And I'm like, well, would you allow a woman to be head of Campus Crusade at Dartmouth? Well, a woman couldn't teach over a man. A woman could lead a woman's <laughs> Bible study. I'm like, whoa, wait, what? Uh, yeah. And then we would do, I mean, you talked about it in, in your book, in your most recent book, Open and Relational Theology, which people can find through your website, which we'll link in the show notes. Um, you talk about the four spiritual laws and we would do this thing. You probably did it too, where we, they'd send us out to dorms and we'd knock on dorm doors and we'd say, we're taking a survey. Can we, ask, yep. you know, and are you interested in spiritual things? And what college student is going to say, no, I'm not. Yeah. In spiritual thing. So can we come in? And then, you know, and so I would say to these guys, like, wait, we're not taking a survey. You're like, this is a, this is a lie. We're, we're going into their dorms under false pretenses. Yeah. And, and you, you talk about this in your book. They're, yeah. they're like, it doesn't matter as long as it saves souls. Like the ethics of it don't the means. matter. Yep. Yep. Which is crazy. Uh. I mean, that they would admit that. <laughs> and then, so, okay, last Campus Crusade story. I... Um, I, I had been taught friendship evangelism in my home oh. church growing up or, uh -huh. you know, relational evangelism. You get to, so the, they were really mad that I joined a fraternity in crusade. And I said, isn't it good to have a Christian in one of these fraternities? And like, you know, I'm not, I don't really drink or whatever. I just, and, and, uh, I, I started talking about friendship evangelism, you know, like you build, you become friends with somebody over time. And then, yep. and this guy said to me, he's like, Tony, here's my job. I walk through an orchard and I pick the ripe apples and then I move on to the next orchard. That was how he understood <laughs> evangelism. evangelism. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, so yeah, we didn't, I didn't fit. Well, tell it, tell me, I bet most people are totally unfamiliar with Nazarenes. Yeah. Um, I know there's different pockets around the country back in the day before I, became a heretic in their eyes. I used to get speaking gigs at Nazarene uh -huh. uh, schools. Um, yeah, didn't you get a, a gig out here in Oregon one time, like in Baker City or something? Yeah, that was that's a, was such a nightmare. Oh, that, really? That oh, was like no. one of the worst speaking gigs of my life. Oh, no. <laughs> which I can t I'll tell you about sometime. My brother came with me because he's from Ben. So I flew oh. to Ben, and then we drove out together. Yeah. Oh my gosh, man. It was uh, really, really bad. Um, but I did speak at Mid-American Nazarene a couple times in, what's that, in Kansas City? Yeah, uh, Olathe, Kansas, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. So where, one of the more who, who the heck are the Nazarenes? Well, the Nazarenes consider themselves the largest organized holiness movement in the world. Um, by holiness, they have a particular idea usually related to what we don't do, <laughs> uh, avoiding certain kinds of things. Um, they have a, uh, we have a Methodist kind of theology. So John Wesley is really important, but also really, at least in the early days, um, revivalistic. You know, you go to a mm -hmm. camp meeting, you go to a service, there's going to be a call for salvation. But what was unique is we also had a second kind of call, a call for sanctification. And it's debated on what exactly that it means, but usually it was talked about in terms of you're not only giving your life to Jesus, you're, I mean, you're not only asking Jesus to save you from hell, you're also giving your life to Jesus. And that means you're not going to smoke, drink, dance, and chew, um, or whatever it is. So mm -hmm. there was kind of a, a clean living uh, let's be holy like God is holy. And that's still a part of the tradition. It's just understood differently today. How so? I, have they relaxed some of those things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
if you have a religion based on keeping rules, it doesn't last very long. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, in fact, especially when you're a kid growing up in that tradition, and your parents are supposedly taking, you know, keeping all the rules, but you you actually live with them, <laughs> and you see what they really do. <laughs> yeah. So second and third generation didn't really stick on to keeping the rules as holiness, and it began to shift more toward. You know, sermons on total commitment, uh, my favorite theme, living a life of love, which has lots of connections to John Wesley. But it's it's really moved away from the legalism, at least in, in lots of pockets, to kind of a more, well, if you were to go into a, a typical Church of Nazarene in America, it would feel like a typical Baptist church. It's really not much different in terms of the the piety. Okay, let me ask you this, and this is this is probably a role you don't have to play very often, but I'm going to ask you to hypothetically pretend that you're the president of your former employer, Northwest Nazarene <laughs> University. Okay. And I come and I say, you guys are the holiness people. You say, we, we're not going to backslide. We don't set the t- – culture doesn't set the terms. We set the terms. And yet you used to say kids couldn't gamble or dance or whatever. And now you've yeah. changed those. So how is that not caving into culture and backsliding? And yeah. there, and his response would be? Tom's response would be, well, I know Tom's response. I want <laughs> you to, I want you to give a, na- the, the, oh, give me the, the party line Nazarene response. What would they say when confronted yeah. with that? You know, I think most presidents at Nazarene colleges recognize that moral moral codes shift over time and they're just trying to sort of align themselves with what's going to work with parents and students of today. So mm-hmm. yeah, they would scoff at uh, things like no mixed bathing, which means no swimming, you know, not being in a swimming pool with someone of the opposite sex. They would laugh at that. A lot of schools today have dances, Nazarene institutions, but you that know, that would have today, been unheard of 50 years ago. Exactly. Right? Oh yeah. When I was a student, you could get kicked out of the university. In fact, people did get kicked out for dancing. Huh. But today it's just a different set of issues. Today it's LGBTQ stuff. Yeah. It's abortion stuff. It's, so it's you know it's just a different set. It's just funny that 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 those traditions that so rail against culture and backsliding and things like that. Also, as you've already pointed out, it's just it's not sustainable. They they yes. all do the same thing. They they renegotiate or they close their doors because no kids would come to those schools. Yep, that's exactly right. And you know, it worried me early on in my life when I started realizing this because first I could I could kind of make sense of the social mores shifting over time, but I wanted like a lot of liberals to get to the core message of the gospel that mm-hmm. was the same with Jesus that came all the way through history and was exactly the same today. And, um, you know, I wanted a set of propositions that uh, were time, timeless. Um, and actually reading a guy named Ernst Trelch Mm. kind of cured me of that. Hmm. And I still think love is at the center of Christianity, but I don't think Christians are the only ones capable of love. So it's it's not quite the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that was an issue. Yeah. Okay. And then you, I mean, speaking of your former uh, uh, place of employment, uh, in, in kind of a very highly publicized fashion, your employment ended at that school and it kind of dragged out over a couple of years. And I mean, people can, I'm sure, go to the internet and read all about it. Um, read all about your troubles. Read all about my troubles. There are people yeah. out there who love <laughs> reading that stuff. <laughs> but, but what I'm more interested in what was what was it that you were espousing theologically that you think really was like that was a bridge too far for for this tribe, this theological family that you'd been a part of for so long. I don't think it was one particular idea. I think it was a collection of ideas that prompted the president of the university, along with the urgings of some pretty influential 
conservative leaders and some people with deep pockets to decide that I, uh, my ideas and me personally was just more of a liability than an asset. And so, um, yeah, so the president told me I was going to have to take a, do an administrative inquiry, which was the same as like going on trial. I had, he gave me 66 questions I had to answer in writing. Holy smokes. Yeah. Some of them were very specific on issues like, you know, God's power. Others were very general, like, you know, what do you think of this article of faith from the denomination? Huh. And um, I wrote- Did you answer them? I did. I wrote a hundred page document. Holy smokes. Went before a couple of judges and- the judges, after some deliberation, decided I was not outside of bounds of the denomination. They had some concerns with my views, but nothing that would, you know, kick me out. So the president ended up using a little clause in the faculty handbook that said, if there's a dip in, in the enrollment of any school, uh, so faculty could be laid off. And he, he had wasted more than a million dollars on a particular program in our school. And so basically it was his fault we had a dip. <laughs> and then he used that to get rid of me, even though I was tenured in a senior faculty. So it was Gosh. very obvious to people what was happening. Yeah. Well, it was obvious to everybody who was watching, you know, watching it happen online. Um, yep. Not a fun time as you no. know, going through that stuff and, and there's still some trauma. I mean, it's the pain has decreased some over time, but there's still pain and there's, you know, family and friends went through that with me and there's, they still endure pain. It's, but actually, you know, I, I don't want to make this whole event about Tom's woes, but I went through another trial earlier this year for being LGBTQ affirming. And, Hmm. um, so people continue to, and you went through a trial now just because you're an elder because or because yeah. of the actual church you attend or what? Yeah, because I'm an ordained elder and I get on podcasts and talk to people like you and say what yeah. I really think. And I literally have people who stalk me and and then send things to leadership and they built a case and 12 people from the Midwest presented uh, formal documents, and I went through a trial. And what's, what's interesting about this recent trial is that really the issue was LGBTQ stuff. There was some other theology stuff tacked on there, but it was, you know, it was not, not uh, to be taken seriously. Yeah. But I am an affirming person, and I came straight out and said that, and I argued the denomination ought to change, and so... I really felt like they were probably going to kick me out this time. Um, (laughs) And the group that met decided to recommend that I not be kicked out. Another group took their recommendation, debated it, didn't have enough signatures to kick me out. So currently I'm still officially in good standing as an elder in the denomination, despite being uh, openly opposed to its views on LGBTQ. It sounds like you have an unteachable spirit. <laughs> I'm gonna go, I got some, I know some guys in Campus Crusade and they're gonna get in touch with some Nazarenes and they said like, we know how to kick someone out. <laughs> oh, that's a good oh line. Oh my gosh. Well, I just I have a friend whose church just got kicked out of the covenant last week for affirming. Oh. Yeah. And they've oh. been you know, it's one of the success stories in that denomination. It's like a church plant that's growing, and yeah. But again, it's this is Tom. Don't you think this issue is going to go the way of dancing at Nazarene yep. universities? Yep, it sure will. Yep, yeah. and there'll be there'll be a small remnant of people in fifty years who they'll still think it's a big deal, just like we've got the Amish and whoever else. Yeah, and there'll always be a small contingency. Now, you spend a lot of time outdoors, and that's obviously the nut of why I wanted you to come on this. There's so many, there's so many theologians, Tom, that I want to have on this podcast. So Trip, you know, Trip's had me on his podcast. I I may have I may have had more guest appearances on Trip's podcast than anybody in the last probably. 15 years. Yeah. It's probably me or Pete Rollins. <laughs> and I'm like, Trip, I'd love to have you on my podcast. First, you need to like go outside. 
<laughs> Just go outside. <laughs> Take a walk. Yeah. Do anything outdoorsy. Cast a line in the, you know. <laughs> so, and there's, I know many, you know, many of my friends who are theologians, they just don't, they're just bookish people. They do inside stuff. They're podcasting and tweeting and reading books and teaching classes. And I'm like, go outside and then we all have something to talk about. Yeah. You go outside a lot. Yep. And was, how, how, long has that been of interest to you? And part two of that question is, I think I know the answer. When you're going through these theological trials, uh, was that, a, a, was that of some solace to you to oh, definitely, yeah. be outside? T- t- talk to me about that. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't call myself, uh, like an outdoors kid growing up. I, I grew up on a farm, you know, I hunted rabbits and I spent time outside, but I, I didn't really consider myself a nature boy kind of a thing. Um, and then I moved and lived a lot of different places I moved to Idaho in 2002 from Boston and, um, got here and thought, you know, I'm in the Northwest. I've got all this beautiful area. Why don't I get out and actually see it? And, and at the time, I had a, a, a camera that was pretty good, and I liked mm. photography. So I initially kind of got out to test out my artistry as a photographer and as a way to kind of get away from the grind of you know, university life. And then I just kind of, I just really enjoyed it. I started honing my photography skills. It became a kind of time for meditation and prayer, getting away thinking through my days and eventually a way to cope with controversies, a way to cope with problems, uh, mostly in my professional life, but sometimes my personal life as well. Um, and then I just started appreciating what I was seeing in nature and wanting to go new places and, you know, go long trips. And, um, I got a, I decided in 2005, I was going to hike, the entire state of Idaho on a thing called the Idaho Centennial Trail. I think there's eight of us who've done it now. And I was going to take my camera with me. And so I started gearing up for that. And and that's kind of just become a, a lifestyle for me, getting out a lot and making photographs. Are you a, a tent camper? Uh, are you a yeah. hammock camper? Like what's your setup when you're on a hike like that? Yeah, I got a, a big Agnes three pound two person tent, two pound um, sleeping bag, you know, three pound pack. So I try to do pretty lightweight, but then I I ruin it by adding heavy camera equipment, tripod, <laughs> that sort of stuff. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a I'm a backpacker. I'm okay. you know I want to go out for three four days, you know, a week or two. That's usually what I do. Well, I shouldn't say usually. I I hike every every week of my life practically. Really? Yep. It's like a very common thing for a Sunday for me to go to church at this little church that I'm a unpaid staff member at, have lunch with my family and then hike and photograph the rest of the day on Sundays. That's very hmm. common. Hmm. Tell me how you're and I want to get into your theology. How does your theology connect? Well, in fact, let me read you a quote and ask you to reflect on it. I have a few quotes from your book. Um, In in about the middle of the book, you have a paragraph where you talk about um, Grandmother Willow talking to Pocahontas Mm. (laughs) and the ants in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and the movie Avatar, and you write, these fictional stories point to non-fictional reality. Creation is comprised from top to bottom with living organisms with agency. (laughs) Now, this is fascinating to me, and this is a topic I've actually talked about on this podcast multiple times, and I've never gotten a great answer, and so I'm going to keep digging around at it. And I want to get to that. First, you may want to kind of lay out 
what's unique about your theology, where you're coming from. You've already mentioned, and and in all your, I mean, every time I've heard you speak or every podcast I've heard you've been on, and for sure in this book, love is at the absolute center of your theology. Right. Um, so set up what your theology is that would lead you then to make a statement like that about all of creation having agency. Yeah. Um, I'm a person who wants to try to make some sense out of life, not just my life, not just human life, not just God's life, creation's life. And so I'm very interested in science, metaphysics, arts, etc. And I'm drawn to hypotheses that can help me put things together and overcome conceptual obstacles. One of the big conceptual obstacles in philosophy of history, history of philosophy, is how in the world our minds and bodies interact. Um, and famously, Rene Descartes is known for thinking that the mind is purely mental and the body is purely physical, and not having a good explanation for how the mind can influence the body and vice versa. One of the potential solutions to that problem is to say that the mind has both a physical and mental dimension, and everything that comprises the human body has a physical and mental uh, dimensions. So they're of the same type, ontologically, to use the philosophical language. So our minds can communicate with our bodies, our bodies can communicate with our minds. Then the next question becomes, okay, well, that, that's a nice answer to a, a deep question, but um, what, how does this fit with the natural world? How does this fit with evolutionary history? Is it the case that there was a, a time in which there was purely physical things in the world and then some mysterious way or supernatural way, mind began to emerge from purely physical things? Or should we talk about something like mentality going all the way to the simplest entities of reality? And I'm in the camp that thinks that conceptually that makes the most sense. So that, uh, you know, dogs can have a mind-body relationship. Rats can have a mind-body relationship. Uh, worms, maybe they don't have minds, but they have some kind of mentality and agency. And I just keep going down cells, even down to quarks. The difference would be, though, that I don't think quarks have uh, are conscious. I, I kind of doubt that worms are conscious. Um, so there would be varying degrees of mentality top to bottom and varying abilities in terms of agency, to use the word that I mentioned in the book. So it's this kind of holistic approach that thinks about all of reality, simple to complex, as comprised in ways that have both mental and physical dimensions. I think I'll stop there because I'm pretty sure you okay, probably Okay, then have. I think you need, to, <laughs> you need to retract the part of the book where you make fun okay. of the guy who gave you the pet rock. <laughs> okay, well, so technically, uh, instead of, uh, technically, I want to make a distinction between organisms, so okay. I think a worm is an organism, and an aggregate. So I think a rock is an aggregate. So I don't think rocks, to use the language of philosophy, qua rocks have free will or agency, but I think worms have agency. So it's the tiniest entities that comprise that rock that are uh, aggregates. Uh, so, but yeah, I like your, I like your claim. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, just, I was like, how do these, if every creative thing has agency, what about, I would be yeah. like, sweet dude, I got a pet rock. Um, but let's, I want to circle back to, okay, consciousness, agency yeah. and consciousness. You're drawing a t distinction yes. between the two. So mm -hmm. let's talk about the difference between agency and consciousness because it. I argue with my wife about whether our dogs have consciousness. And I've mm. thought of consciousness almost as what we would say in philosophy is second order discourse. The, mm -hmm. the ability to think about our thinking, you know, or think about something that happened previously to reflect on a previous event. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I don't yeah. think probably dogs do that. I think there's a lot I don't of know. instinctual yeah. stuff going on. But but of course, I don't know. I'm not inside the mind of a dog. Um, when you say consciousness, what what do you think of? Some It probably uh, includes self-awareness. Now, are dogs self-aware? I'm not sure. Yeah. They, they learn for sure, and they exceed the world outside of them in ways and they react to it. But uh, is that self-aware? I don't know. So uh, I would prefer to talk about varieties of higher and lower order mentality such that consciousness is going to be in the higher and at what point it emerges evolutionary, I don't really know. But even the way we talk about, well, think of like the, the usual way a physician talks about what's happening in the body. They'll say, well, we'll see how the, the cells respond. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, that's an agency kind of a thing. And cells are pretty simple and not as the simplest, but they're much simpler than dogs. So um, even our common way of talking about what happens in the world oftentimes appeals to agency. Um, I think what gets really interesting is when we t- start talking about cyborgs. So, you know, um, I... I've been having some heart problems the last year, and hmm. they win. They stuck a little loop recorder inside my chest, so now I'm a cyborg. Um, <laughs> now, do, does that little loop recorder have agency? I don't think so. I think it's kind of like a sophisticated rock, to be honest with you. But I think the cells around it have agency. So there's some interesting distinctions to be made and some philosophical questions to be explored about the relations between computers and and organisms. Yeah, years ago, I was teaching a doctor of ministry course at Fuller Seminary in Dallas. Willard was as well. And our students students all thought it would be fun to get us both our cohorts together and set up a little debate for us. And I was like, I am... I, I am not of the caliber to debate Dallas Willard. <laughs> but I did come up with a pretty good question for him. And I said, because, uh, you know, his his he did so much work around personhood, identity mm-hmm. and personhood of the human being. And I said, well, what is it? What, what will it mean when if if we're able to download all the electrical impulses in our brains that make up our memories and our thoughts and everything? and somehow upload that to a computer so that after our physical body dies, are, is that still a person? Is that a person or not a person? Yeah. You know? And he said, yeah. Oh, that'll never happen. <laughs> and I yeah. was like, mm. uh, yeah. It's and you know, most of the students in the room never. were like, uh, Dallas, I think that it's definitely possible. Yeah. It, it's always his response is like, well, say- at I'll least I'll be dead by the time it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, so I don't yeah. have to philosophize about it. But it is a tough question. But yeah. and a slightly uh, uh, um, sidetrack. Did you know that Dallas Willard was an open theist? I did kind of know that. I mean, he, I'd say he kept it. You know, he played his cards close to his vest on that. Yeah, I call because him he was beloved in reform circles, like at Fuller, where where I <laughs> yeah. went, went. That's right. You know? I call him a closeted open theist because, yeah, he did. But he's got a paper in which he makes the argument. It's actually a peculiar argument. Not many open theists would say this, but he thinks that God could know the future but chooses not to. Mm-hmm. Most most open theists wouldn't say it. But anyway. Yeah, no, this is interesting, and it'll help listeners. I mean, uh, to, this phrase open theist or open and, open and relational theology, which is how you – you know, yeah. this it's the title of your book, and it's how you define yourself. And the main difference, well, you've you've talked about it. God's relationship to time is a mm-hmm. big difference between you and and conventional the- theology. Mm-hmm. Um, I made I I'm right there with you on my book on the atonement. I mean, that's one of the major premises that people are like, I just can't go there with you because yeah. God's outside of time. And I used the same thing you did in oh, the cool. in your book, and I'm like, oh, oh, okay. If God's outside of time, will you do me a favor and pray for my grandma who died 30 years ago that she won't die? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I do. I don't mean that. You know, like, okay. Well, if God's outside of time, then you can pray for your dead grandma to actually be alive. 
it's it's ludicrous it makes no sense i agree Um, with you i know some professional philosophers who will make that claim who who, like um actually you may know him do you know a guy named kevin tempe teaches philosophy at calvin college no he's one of these people with a timeless god who thinks that god can change the past and he is definitely in the minority yeah major major people like aquinas would say no that's not possible (laughs) yeah well i always pass out to my students that is it uh did Nick Walterstorff write that article year in like the seventies? The difference between eternal and everlasting. Yes, and basically that's right. makes the claim that the Bible says of God, God, God is everlasting. God goes from age to age. Right. The, right. the Bible doesn't claim God's eternal outside of time, and yeah. that's even a reformed philosopher saying that, you know, so. Exactly. That's a great essay. Very, very formative. Now, one of the problems is that when English translators take the Greek and the Hebrew, but especially the Greek, they'll use that word eternal and not mean by it timeless, but they'll mean by it something like uh, a quality of existence. Like, so take, take that verse that I learned, first verse I ever memorized, you know, for God so loved the world gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Does eternal life mean unending life or does it mean a higher quality or abundant life? And mm-hmm. I think the text means something like abundant, mm-hmm. but that word eternal kind of, I think confuses people there. So do you draw a, a bright line between human beings and the rest of the created order? No, not a bright line. I think of it as a matters of degrees of complexity. Okay. Do you think that human beings have a special relationship with God, a different relationship with God, because we're more more complex beings than um, the 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 rabbit that you shot when you were a farm kid? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to. to I want to dig down yeah. a little deeper into like. You and your and in 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 ways that avoid words like panentheism because my listeners aren't mm, so much yeah. theolo- that we're this is not homebrewed Christianity. Um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I wanna I wanna explore your idea of God's relationship to nature, to creation, humans and otherwise, in in you know, layperson's terms, which is exactly yeah. what you do in this book, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think rabbits have a relationship with God, but I doubt that it's conscious. Okay. So um, I have a relationship with God, and I think it's conscious. I've got at least an idea of what God is like, even though I might be wrong about that. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, again, it'd be matters of degrees and not kind, which is another way of saying every part of creation is related to God, but it doesn't mean that every at everything in creation is equally valuable. Uh, I think all of creation has intrinsic value, but I don't. I don't uh, lose any sleep killing mosquitoes. Um, okay. So and other kinds of hunting, um, I think I think can be appropriate. So like I know you're a hunter. Um, I I get squeamish about um, hunting that's just for the sake of killing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes there is, it is necessary to kill for the sake of killing when there's overpopulation issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, for food and for those kinds of things. So, um, I'm not a, a strongly anti hunting person, but I also don't hunt myself. So it's not like I'm a big advocate either. But you, you, are you a meat eater or a vegetarian? Yeah. What's really weird is I, I went for a couple of years as a vegetarian, Um, Mm -hmm. and part of it was for sort of animal sake, because I just hate the way animals are, especially in feedlots and things like I'd much rather eat wild game than feedlot game, uh, feedlot animals. But it was mostly for environmental concerns because I thought, well, if I didn't eat meat, then maybe there would be fewer feedlots and fewer, you know, caged animals. But then my problem with being a vegetarian had it ended up being after two years I gave up on it and I I eat less meat than I used to but I'm not a true vegetarian anymore. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I want to talk about the coyote that you tried to free from the mm. trap. Yeah. I thought that was such an interesting anecdote in your book as a hunter. Mm-hmm. And I've done some trapping too. So like that could have been my trap. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you tried to release a coyote from a trap. You were unsuccessful and you returned to the trap and the coyote was gone. And you assumed that, you know, the trapper came most likely shot the, shot the trapped coyote and then took it and used its pelt. Uh, I mean, some people eat coyote, but most people won't, aren't going to eat coyote meat. They're going to just no. use the pelt. And it may have been that coyote was a nuisance or was killing. I suspect that's more of what it was. I suspect it was killing livestock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you even write in the book, which I thought was wonderfully honest, that uh, that was illegal. What you did in under in Idaho law, it's illegal to release an animal from a trap. You know. um, So I just wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Because. And I want to ask you about that in the context of the coyote being a predator. So if you would have, if you, we're, we're, human beings are predators, we're apex predators. I mean, we do, we actually, people get killed by grizzlies and, you know, that's about it. I mean, in the wild, in Idaho, if somebody dies, they either fall off a mountain or they get killed, mauled by a grizzly or whatever. There aren't yeah. many other predators that, pose us any kind of threat sharks maybe yeah i mean occasionally a mountain lion will take a small person a a child or something yeah so now if you would have come across that coyote with a bunny in its mouth would you have tried to free the bunny from the jaws of the coyote and i'm not trying to like i'm not trying to be an asshole or whatever i'm just trying to like actually have a, a theological philosophical conversation with you about our role our relationship to the rest of the created order, how God looks at that. That's what I'm trying to dig around at. And because I found these anecdotes that really fascinating in your book. So I'm just like, where are we at on that? Yeah. I don't have a really sophisticated answer for you, Tony, but I'll just sort of be as honest as I can about like my feelings of the, yeah, uh, of these yeah. matters. Um I've noticed in my life that I have greater empathy for more complex creatures. Hmm. Okay. Like I don't have problems killing ants and and, that crawl on me or, you know, uh, I usually don't destroy, I usually don't kill a spider unless I think it's a threat. Okay. I, I used to kill rattlesnakes a lot because I considered them threats, but I don't kill them anymore either. Unless I think, you know, they, they would get me in some way, which, you know, it's pretty rare, but, um, yeah, like I don't have the same emotional response, let's say to a dead mouse as I do to, you know, a coyote. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying I'm not advocating my position as the correct one. I'm just sort of saying, this is how I kind of go through life. The more complex the creature the more I empathize with it and probably the more likely I am to rescue it in a situation where it might die. That's so interesting. I've, I, I sometimes refer to it as the eyelash, the eyelashes rule. If an animal has eyelashes, people are real squeamish about killing it. So they're like, yeah. Oh, I could never kill a deer. Do you fish? Oh yeah. I fish all the time. <laughs> yeah. What's the difference? <laughs> well, fish doesn't look like you. It doesn't have like, I, I killed a deer. Uh, what I killed a deer less than a week ago, and it was a young male, younger than I thought, unfortunately, um, because it was kind of its body was hidden behind a tree, and so I thought it was bigger than it was. I shot it, and then, you know, when you shoot an animal with a, a rifle, most often it does not die right away, and I had to right. I, I force myself to stand there. And watch this animal die, suffer and die. It's suffering. I mean, it's pawing at the ground. You know, it runs a little bit. It's pawing at the ground. There's blood everywhere. There's blood coming out of its mouth and nose. Um, it's, I hate it. I, I hate it. I hate yeah. that part of it. I love every other part of hunting. And I don't do that when I, sh- next, I, I leave in two days to South Dakota to hunt pheasants. And when I, my dog brings a pheasant back to me and it's still alive, I wring its neck, 
yep. put it in my game pouch and off I walk to shoot the next pheasant. And I've always struggled with that, Tom, because I'm like, why am I um, showing preference, emotional preference to the deer yeah. over a pheasant or a fish? And I'm wondering if beyond your personal feelings or my personal feelings, if you think there's any philosophical or theological justification for having more empathy toward more complex creatures, which is, I love the way you phrased it. And I'm wondering if we can move it beyond our own personal feelings towards some kind of philosophical concept that we could justify. Yeah. We, we're just doing on the fly philosophy here. You and me, baby. Right. Let's right. do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in addition to complexity, it probably has to do with my perceived view of how much pain the creature might experience. So I suspect, okay. I suspect a trout experiences less pain than the deer, right, to use your example. Um, I doubt mosquitoes have any pain when I kill them. So that might be part of it as well. So it might not just be complexity. It might be capacity for pain and pleasure. Um, I, it's also, and I'm sure you would agree with this, it also really depends on the circumstance. Like I can kill a dog with fairly minimal guilt if I think I'm doing the dog a favor. Like I've killed dogs that have been hit by cars that are going to die eventually. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Still that? Um, I've never done that. That's got to be tough. Yeah. To do. It, the first time it was, but I kept telling myself, I'm doing you a favor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because um, so circumstances matter to me, but, you know, I'm not a total situational ethics person because I'm my empathy plays a role just like everybody's empathy does. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I, I, I had a, I, I was driving down the highway near our house a few months ago and I saw a mallard by the side of the highway and it had clearly flown into a car and it was on the shoulder and it was alive, but you know, it was a matter of time. And I thought I was with my wife and i was like i should go back it was super busy rush hour and she's like for a duck i said i just want to dispatch that duck yep yep and she's like you can't the traffic it's not like worth risking your life by pulling to the shoulder of a busy interstate and to to kill a duck (laughs) yeah and i didn't do it and i also thought oh man if somebody saw me by the side of the interstate ringing the neck of a duck (laughs) <laughs> they be calling state troopers and you know yeah. the whole deal yeah and then you know yeah a couple days later i drove by that same spot and of course the duck was dead but it was also like a, a spot on the road you know yeah, it had been yeah. run over it was it was dist- and yet here we are again you know another way that human beings killed an animal so i just wonder like again the ethics of freeing the coyote when we're an apex predator going after the coyote and you eat meat and I eat meat and I shoot deer, it's just, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm looking for hard and fast rules, philosophical or theological rules that simply don't exist. And it is, uh, an ad you're making these constant ad hoc decisions about the sacredness of life. Yeah. Well, I think you can say all life is sacred, but, there may be instances in which you think killing a life is better overall for whatever variety of reasons you have. Yeah. I suspect, though, let me let me try something on you. I bet you and I share something in common. Um, I, <laughs> this is going to make me sound morbid, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the things I like hiking about hiking in the wilderness is I see lots of dead things. Some of those dead things are recently killed. Others have been dead for a while and it's just bones. But I think there's something something positive about witnessing death. Um, I think in our culture, we go to extraordinary ends to protect ourselves from seeing death. 
and going into the wilderness, I just feel like I'm facing life in a more realistic way when I come across a dead animal. <laughs> I, maybe that's, no, would you man. agree or are you very different? <laughs> Tom, anybody, all my listeners will be like, is he, is he just reading off a script that Tony gave him? I say oh, that really? exact thing okay. regularly. Oh, Absolutely. Interesting. I think, that, I think that being in the wild, wild places, yeah. and being a hunter puts me in face, puts me in touch with mortality and death. Yeah. And reminds me of my own mortality in a way that we have completely sequestered off from modern life. Yeah. We just don't see, think of our ancestors 500 years ago by the, by somebody is the time age we are mid fifties, how many dead bodies they would have seen. Yeah, exactly. Scores of dead bodies of dead human bodies. We don't even see them. You know, we don't even have. Around here, we don't even have open caskets anymore at wakes. It's rare, yeah, yep. Um, so I totally agree with you. You know, there's a kind of a a, a, a renewed interest right now in stoicism. People are um, in the, the, there's this guy Ryan Holiday who writes best selling books about stoicism, and he runs you know Instagram account called the Daily Stoic, and um, you know, being in touch with your mora- uh, mortality, in your mortality, in your face. Yeah. It, uh, uh, memento mori, like remember right. your death, yep. is such a hallmark of Stoic philosophy from the uh, Greeks and Romans. I think there's really something to that. And I think being outside is a big part of it. I totally agree with you. Mm, I'm happy to hear that. Happy yeah. to hear that. Yeah. Um. Before we go, I would love to hear you sum up. I know I hate when people do this, but you've just written a popular level book. <laughs> yeah. So you should be able to do this. What is it? What, what's what? Let's let me think. Let me put it this way. For for a a twenty first century American who's listening to my podcast, who's probably outdoorsy, who probably doesn't go to church, is kind of post-church, post-Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, how does open and relational theology scratch an itch that they have? You know, I speak at a lot of places, universities, churches, conferences, and probably the most common um, response I get from people after I lecture is someone will come up to me and they'll say, you know, what you've been talking about the last hour is something I've been kind of thinking about and believing for a long time, but never had the words to articulate it. In other words, open and relational theology kind of fits these deep intuitions that we have. And for a person who, you know, likes nature, maybe doesn't go to church very much, maybe disillusioned with the categories of religion they've been given them, the God they've been presented, open and relational theology often comes as a breath of fresh air hmm. because it's got a God who's not controlling, who's not in charge of the world, who's not in control. It's got a God who leads with love. Uh, is concerned about all creation, uh, and it overcomes the major um, the major conceptual issues people have with belief in God. You know, the problem of evil, evolution. What do you do about the afterlife? All that kind of stuff. I'm not saying I'm not saying we all we know that we have all the answers <laughs> come straight from heaven or whatever, but. This is a model of God that I think fits the 21st century person. And surprisingly, it has lots of deep history uh, within um, scripture. Well, thanks, man. That's it's Thank been you. great. And uh, anytime we can do on the fly philosophy and theology, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Thanks for the I will just tell you this. I'll tell you this story um, okay. about this event you and I were both at. 
I I led a panel discussion with a couple other with a couple of people about kind of post church experiences of the divine, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I was more moderating than I wasn't really talking uh, my you know about my own positions, but I did mention something about like, uh, oh, a, you know, a couple weeks ago or like last weekend. I killed multiple animals. And I just said it offhanded because I talk about hunting all the time and a lot of my friends hunt and my family, you know, they all know I hunt, etc. But there was like a gasp in the room. And I thought, oh, yeah, right. These people don't kill animals. They eat <laughs> animals, but they don't kill them. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was an interesting little moment of like, oh, yeah, it, it, that probably sets me apart and they probably think I'm, a crazy bloodthirsty you know <laughs> trumper or something but yeah yeah but is it the case i mean like i i live in idaho most of my neighbors hunt, right. so it's right. hunting is a big deal here um and when we talk about when we talk about the hunting experience the things that they talk most about are the thrill of the chase being out in nature and seeing yeah. the colors and experiencing it um, and the camaraderie I'm going with my buddies, you know, yeah. those are the things that are kind of the, I think at the heart of the culture. Yeah. They'll show you the big antlers. Yeah. They yeah. killed this buck or whatever, and they'll share some meat from their freezer, but it's, that's usually not what they lead with. It's usually the thrill. We went over, we hiked over six mountains and we, yeah. Yeah, 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 you know, <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I mean, the one thing I would add to that is, is bringing meat to the table of my family and i know the provenance of that meat yeah that, that yeah. i harvested that animal that i butchered it with my own hands that the blood of that animal's under my fingernails um that's that that would be the one thing i would add to the, to to their list of but yeah the camaraderie that i can i can hardly wait like to I leave at 5 a.m. on Friday for South Dakota, and I can hardly wait for all those things, you know, as well as coming home with pheasant meat. But yeah, it's the the guys, it's the dogs, it's yeah, being out in the field, it's going to the bar at the, at the end of the day and having a beer and laughing about the shots you missed. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Well, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Thanks for your book. People should Thank go you, buy Tony. it. Um, and have you come speak at their churches and yeah, thanks, seminaries and everywhere else. So I hope our paths cross in person again soon. I do too. Yeah, we yeah. didn't get to ch- talk all that much in uh, Chapel Hill, but I'd like to do more. Do it again. Mm-hmm.